Hello there, member of the general public. This is an episode of our monthly reading club that we're exceptionally unlocking for you. If you're not familiar with our reading club, it's a means of getting to grips with the essential texts to understand the most important social, political, and economic themes of our times. We're now halfway through our 2022 syllabus. The first six months of the year were dedicated to emergency politics and control. We thought, with the pandemic in our rearview mirror and a climate emergency up ahead of us, to explore the key texts around the politics of exception and the politics of fear through works by Carl Schmitt, Giorgio Agamben, Michel Foucault, Frank Ferrading, Corey Robin, and many others, and here in this episode works by Andreas Malm and Adam Tews. The next three months will be dedicated to cynical ideology, looking at questions of belief and disbelief, political trust, and conspiracy theories through works by Slavoj Žižek, Anthony Giddens, Timothy Malley, and more. And we'll close out the year by examining whether the concept of neo-feudalism is the right way to understand contemporary political economic transformations. We try to keep the amount of reading each month fairly digestible. More often than not, it's only 50 pages or so, and rarely more than 200. And of course, there's plenty of additional reading on the syllabus if you want to explore further. If this sounds like it's for you and you'd like to follow along, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast and select tier number two. In doing so, you'll get access to all our paywalled episodes, which means at least two unique episodes a month, including a regular cast of guests, bonus content from interviews, which, you know, to be honest, is where all the best stuff comes out, and a lot more. Plus, you obviously get, of course, access to the Reading Club, where you're invited to submit questions and comments for us to discuss. We want it to be an ongoing dialogue and not just us simply projecting our views. So anyway, I'll shut up now. Here's our discussion on eco-Leninism. Hope you enjoy it and see you very soon. circle people, uh, members of the Reading Club, second tier subscribers. Uh, this is the final edition of the first section of the Reading Club of 2022, specifically the section on emergency politics and control. Uh, before we actually get into it and say any more, uh, I'm sure you'll all be aware of the fact that there are local reading clubs um, in several places around the world. Some of the people are still looking for people to meet up with where they are. Um, and there's some very keen, eager people. Sometimes there's two people or three people who are still looking for other people with whom to discuss the books. And I think it's important to emphasize that um, it might be difficult for you to meet up monthly, but the syllabus is there. And although the episodes here come out monthly, uh, generally towards the very end of the month, we're a little bit late this month. We're, we're about a week late. Uh, apologies for that. But um, if you were waiting for it last week, but um, the idea is that you can ha- hold these local reading clubs following along the syllabus and following along the episodes uh, after the fact, if you want to. Um, if that makes it a little bit less onerous for you, um, if you want to do them every six weeks, you know, be our guest. Um, we hope that what we provide is useful in thinking through these issues, because again, this is meant to be a, a part of a broader intellectual and political project of trying to get to grips with some of the most important themes of our time. Uh, and so, you know, 
what works for you, uh, that's great. If you can join along and if you can get your questions in, in advance of the readings, fantastic. Uh, if you can't, that's not a worry. That's not a problem. Uh, we'll try to address them in the future. So if you do have things that are brought up, um, issues, questions that were brought up by the episode, by your reading and want to submit them a month on, we can still discuss them at the future uh, reading club. Um, so we can keep that kind of dialogue aspect of this going. Um, I'll say a little bit about what's coming up uh, over the next uh, three months, the, the kind of the next section of the syllabus um, at the very end of this, uh, just to sort of trail that and to discuss through kind of the issues that we want to discuss, the perspectives that we're looking at, and um, a little bit about how to go about it. Uh, but for now, I'll pass over to Phil, who's going to talk us through uh, this week's, or excuse me, this month's reading uh, and what we're going to discuss. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So this is a combination of two readings. One reading which we've um, done before in a way uh, which was also linked with an interview with the author, and this is Andreas Malm. We had Andreas on in um, episode 168 at the peak of um, the global pandemic in January 2021, or in the mid middle of it at least anyway, if not exactly the, the peak in terms of transmission or what have you. And the book is Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century. We've paired it up with a essay by the historian Adam Tews, who's also been on um, the podcast before. And this is an essay that he wrote in November 2021 um, called Ecological Leninism, where he tries to elaborate a paradigm out of Andreas Malm's various writings on the um, on an appropriate radical response to the climate crisis, the climate emergency. So the I mean, basically, the inspiration for this, I suppose, was that in we've done kind of a, we've through looking at emergency politics, and hopefully I don't think anyone would disagree, any of our listeners would disagree with the notion that emergency politics is central to understanding political order at the moment, um, in the midst of the war in Ukraine and coming out of lockdown and everything else. And We've gone through a few kind of iterations, you know, we've looked at kind of the political theory paradigms of Corey Robin, we've looked at the Foucauldian critical account of biopolitics, we've looked at the classical kind of authoritarian paradigm with Carl Schmitt's concept of the political, and I wanted to return to look at the radical, um, a radical variant or um, a radical paradigm, and specifically one that models itself on a Marxist understanding of politics as to what it might offer. And so this is particularly why the framing that Tews provides in his essay is so useful. So with that, um, with that out of the way, the other element, I suppose, which wasn't, didn't, you know, this wasn't obvious when we devised the reading club for this year, uh, this hadn't happened yet, but obviously there's also um, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the response to it. And I think it's worth reading the ecological Leninist, the eco-Leninist paradigm through the response to the war in Ukraine, and we're going to try and do that too. So with all of that said, um, I suppose the core question, which I don't propose that we answer directly in our discussion, but the one that I'd like to keep kind of hovering over the discussion, and also the one which I'd like, you know, kind of to... Um, uh, puts forward in readers' minds and also to have reader readers to listeners in listeners' minds and to have listeners respond is how will the emergency politics of the radical left parlay into the broader frameworks of emergency politics and particularly the liberal and technocratic emergency politics that we're living through at the moment? So anything to That's add? That's quite tantalising. 
to have a to have a question like that posed, but we can't answer it directly. Um, well, you can give it a shot if you want. It. I just I, the reason I said not answer it directly is because I thought it was uh, perhaps too complex to answer directly. But give it a shot. Uh, easily. There you go. <laughs> thank you, thank you, George. We can always rely. We can always rely on you to answer our um, complex questions uh, directly. So. Um, Alex, anything to add before we uh, get stuck in? No, uh, no. Let's get let's get started because I have plenty to say on the specifics of this. Okay. So the as I say, I would urge listeners to um, go back to the episode we had with Andreas Malm and to re-listen to it if you have the time, which is episode one six eight. And I want to focus uh, rather than retreading the ground of uh, Malm's book, which we'll talk about more as the discussion gets going. I wanted just to briefly summarize. Adam Tews's um, essay. And so what Tews draws out is um, he contrasts basically two possible left responses to the climate crisis. One is a kind of Green New Deal model, modeled on the New Deal, the original Rooseveltian New Deal itself, um, and indeed the anti-fascist kind of popular mobilization of the Second World War, leading to the construction of the social democratic state, expanded welfare provision, um, reduced inequalities, and a strong legitimate and powerful state mobilizing technological mobilizing technology um, capital economic resources on an enormous scale and achieving a tremendous transformation in politics and social order as a result he's aware in critical you know in self-critical mode he's aware this is could be too easy you know and simply kind of imagining that you could um uh, pull, you know, kind of a Green New Deal off the shelf, as it were, on the Rooseveltian model and produce similar effects today. You know, he realizes that's too easy. And this is what leads him into his discussion of the eco-Leninist paradigm, which is drawn out by um, Malm across various books, not only across the book that we've chosen for this session, Corona Climate Chronic Emergency, but also How to Blow Up a Pipeline, another work that Malm has done, including White Skin, Black Fuel. So, here, the paradigm is the one that Malm uses, and he calls himself a Leninist. And the one that he deploys is the idea of war communism from the end of the First World War. And he, uh, the when the Russian revolutionary state was besieged on all sides. And he also kind of makes, uh, Adam Tews makes a point about how this required a shift away from because they no longer had the access to the resources of the old Tsarist empire, which were had been captured by counter-revolutionary forces, including um, kind of ironically enough, the coal, the coal of the Donbass region, which is being fought over today, obviously in Ukraine. Um, and so they had to innovate. And one of the ways in which they innovated was that they filled the, Bol the Bolsheviks filled the trains with wood fuel. And so Malm takes this kind of as a metaphor of the kind of D, the rapid, radical decarbonization that could be possible and it's a way of getting around the question you know he wants to make i think the intention is to make clear that drastic forceful and determined political action is necessary without promises of um, cornucopian promises of the blessed future to come but the acceptance of um, privation and suffering which was the core of the um 
the core of war of the politics of war communism and he takes this as a model for what could be offered so twos talks through you know some of the differences between social democracy and eco-leninism or green new dealism and eco-leninism and mentions for instance the difference in time horizons and also makes the point about the fact that malm is very conscious of the fact that this this kind of politics has seems to have no capacity for it to be enacted because it's a revolutionary according to malm at least it's a revolutionary crisis but without a revolutionary actor or subject who's able to address it so is there anything else you guys want to add to the brief summary of the tuesday essay well i think first of all i'd like to say that as uh, I, I assume that you two will um, be especially harsh on malm uh, and the politics that he advances, it falls to me to provide a little bit of balance, um, not for the sake of balance, but out, out of intellectual honesty and fairness, which sometimes of is course, deficient. Of course, from, uh, you, from, from you, are the, you are the intellectually honest and fair one. Please exactly. So, um, no, I mean, look, obviously, if, if you guys were Greens, I would be taking the opposite stance. I'd be bending the stick in the other direction. I think what, it's important to say that Malm's uh, account, I think, is analytically pretty rich. Um, at, he is pretty honest and genuinely radical, right? I think there's a genuine radical radicalism there um, in going to the root of the problem. Um, and so you might disagree, and I disagree with a lot of what he proposes, um, but I think that there's a logic there which has to be tangled with and taken seriously um, and not dismissed by just simply by um, screaming about, you know, uh, this is just uh, a way to support ruling elites and their imposition of emergency rule. Um, it, not least in, in, because if we consider ourselves to be Leninists, I mean, I, I don't know if George does, I'm, I'm pretty certain Phil does, um, that I think we have to take this seriously. And I do think he presents a consistent Leninist argument. All that said, in, in response to the specific question, I think it's telling that, for example, with regard to social democracy, Tews rightfully highlights, and actually Malm already highlights in his book, the difference in time frames, right? So social democracy is, always assumes it has time on its side, or at least traditionally it did. I don't know if that would be the case for contemporary social democracy or even a, a lot of post-war social democracy. By the 1970s, I don't think social democrats thought they had time on their side. Um, precisely because of the crisis of the 1970s and because they no longer really believed in uh, a parliamentary road to socialism in many cases, um, or per, certainly by the 1980s, that was the case. So that time frame question, I think it is um, a very important one to highlight. And I think it's right to say that, you know, uh, climate change does impose itself in a, quite, it, the question of time becomes important. Um, I don't think we can gradually respond to to it. I think it, it will take some very serious measures to, to, to kind of respond to it and, and we don't have forever, right? I think that uh, certainly is the case. It presents a very serious civilizational challenge um, and which if it isn't responded to, it, it will create a global situation um, in which the cost, the, the sheer amount of human labor dedicated to merely keeping things livable um, or keeping things equal will be so great that it would seem, you know, retrospectively absurd that we didn't take more action now, um, precisely because having to live in a world of greater droughts, hurricanes, natural disasters, uh, that they will, that that will just be a huge waste of human uh, resources. So um, I think that time frame thing is, is very right. I think, the, I think though, where, 
where Malm shows his hand and uh, and where he shows himself to be anti-cornucopian. And this is, I, you know, Phil already hinted at this. I think that's where my greatest um, my greatest problem with, with, with what Malm advances with this eco-Leninism is, is that it doesn't provide, it doesn't promise in any way a better life for people. Um, and I think this is clear in a thing, in a thing that Tews points out, that, you know, war communism uh, entailed a switch to wood instead of coal and oil under the most brutal, um, dramatic situation of a fight for survival, uh, life and death struggle um, in the early 1920s. Climate change, the climate change version that Malm advances uh, would see a switch to wind and solar. But what I think is telling in this is that both entail a switch to a less energy dense solution. Obviously, burning coal is much less efficient than burning coal or oil. And likewise, wind and solar um, itself is probably is less efficient than a solution like 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 nuclear energy. So I think there, I think it's I think that really is a tell as to what kind of future is envisaged, not one of greater energy production, which would be plentiful, cheap, and clean, importantly. It's one in which um, we would be doing, making do with less. So I have some, I've got some responses to that. Um, but do you want to come in before I respond to Alex, George? Um, I just wanted to thank Alex for his intellectual honesty. I think it's really, I really value, I recognize it and yeah, I value it. Um, no, I, I mean, I guess just... <sighs> I just, I just think that the fundamental premise of emergent around that time frame of emergency politics that we don't have time. I just don't accept that. I just, I just fundamentally think capitalism will persist. It's a, it's a shortcut. It's a capitalism will say, persist. Capital. I'm not arguing that capitalism well, will persist. It's, a, it's, a, it's like I just, I just think as a, I just react against it in a, in a negative way to be to be bounced into some political action because time is running out. It's later than you think. Well, like this is, people have been saying this for, for such a long time and it just doesn't, it just doesn't make me uh, panicked in the way that perhaps it's intended to. It doesn't make so me I just panic fundamentally... either. I, I don't, but like, I don't buy well, it. Like I don't, I don't, the point? I don't buy it. Like I don't feel, I don't feel an urge to deal with climate change. I would much rather never have to think about it at all personally. Right. But I, I, I buy I, the argument that scientists make, even those who are, let's say, of an eco-modernist persuasion and who are not catastrophists and who are not saying that, it, you know, it, if we don't act within five years or now or yesterday, that the whole world will explode. I don't buy that at all. But action is necessary. We can't, if we continue on current trajectory for 50 years, 100 years, that will seriously endanger human civilization, not human survival. I disagree. Civilization. Well, so, I mean, we had, I mean, I don't know, Alex, 50 or 100 years doesn't really sound like an emergency to me. I mean, that's... I didn't say it's emergency. I didn't use the term emergency. Like, it's an urgency. That's an emergency for the No, it's an urgency, not an emergency, and they're different things. Oh, my God. Okay, but the point is, I mean, if you take that away from Malm, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I'm not sure how much is left, right? I think this is a discussion we had. So, but uh, let me respond to some of your points as well. So, um this is a discussion we so for listeners um, who might be new to us, this is a discussion we had with Lee Phillips, um, the environment um, writer on the environment and science uh, back in um, episode 91. And his reading of the, you know, he's kind of been following all of the um, IPCC reports and he follows these debates very closely. And his reading of the situation is that the the kind of the, catas- the catastrophic scenario it would be closer to the end of this century, assuming no action is taken in the interim. 
Um, now, obviously, that you know that how that talent. I mean, you know, obviously, there are plenty of catastroph- catastrophists who say that the inability to you know to contain um, the average rise in global temperature to two degrees will have is itself kind of impossible to deal with under current kind of levels of um, technology and development and what have you. But I mean, I I am persuaded by Lee and by others' um, accounts that the objective kind of emergency just isn't there, at least at the moment. Um, now, I wouldn't say I, I've written about Lenin, but that does not make me a Leninist. Um, for the simple reason, so I have to disagree with you, Alex, despite your your intellectual honesty and generosity and deep integrity, that in fact, I'm not a Leninist. For the simple reason that, you know, I think it's meaningless in the absence of an organized labor movement, because the point of Leninism is a, a specific kind of vision of political leadership, and there's nothing to politically lead, at least with respect to um, an organized labor movement. And so therefore... That's a bit of a cop-out. Not at all. It's a bit of a like a disavowing. If you disavow Lenin three times, then just be careful. But no, I mean, not at all. It's uh, absolutely. What about the analysis, though? Well, I'm getting to that. So the point, my point being, though, that the so to say, you know, to say Leninism without threading through or taking the full measure of the absence of an organized labor movement. That seems to me to be, you know, kind of a a contradiction that just can't, you know, is unsustainable. It can't hold up. So when Malm acknowledges the fact there isn't like a revolutionary actor for his vision, but nonetheless, you know, it must persist with this kind of, um, he doesn't kind of draw out the, he doesn't think about what does a society look like which doesn't have a revolutionary actor, right? He says that he takes it as a kind of, as a, as a kind of a hurdle. A practical problem rather than a rather than having kind of um, social and political consequences it's like a matter of organization well you know we would like this but we don't have the people to do it how do we get a, how do we get around that so he takes it as a kind of as a practical problem without drawing out what the consequences for social order are of a society that doesn't have an organized labor movement and that's a serious it seems to me analytical problem alex you wanted to come in no i i think that's well put i mean i don't have a problem you know I take the point about the historical specificity of Leninism, um, and it's in a you know the, the difficulty in just simply applying Leninism to today in, in that context. Um, and Tuz puts it nicely as well: that climate change is a revolutionary problem without a revolutionary subject. I think that's correct. Um, but the, the lesson I think, or to extract, you know, what Leninism would be shorthand here for, and again. It's probably not doing justice to it, but it's a shorthand, would be precisely that question of leadership. And secondly, that aspect, I guess, to put it in the simplest possible terms, be ready, you know, which Malm cites, right, Um, to have a kind of uh, a self-conscious vanguard, which is able to act in a moment of emergency and to turn the repressive forces of the state, for example, against itself, um, which is what Malm precisely proposes with climate change using the example of 1917 and and so on. Um, But I I think you're right in that in the absence of a mass movement to lead with which you could have a Leninist relationship in in, in relation to this mass movement, uh, it becomes an argument for adventurism or terrorism, which Malm is explicit about in, in terms of, you know, blowing up pipelines and so on, direct action. Yeah, and therefore, I mean, anti-Leninist, there was, a, you know, there's a whole debate in Russian populism and Russian Marxism about the redundancy of um, uh, terrorist tactics. I mean, it was one of the 
yeah, you know, one of the kind absolutely. of core contributions of um, of Bolshevik political theory and revolutionary and pre-revolutionary Russia. But I mean, I suppose so. You know, there is a deeper point which I think is um, the most important one, which is that any with you know, if you're if you're simply kind of um, crafting ideas and theories without reference to the underlying dynamics, then inevitably the content will of your vessel will be given by factors that are outside of your control. So in this case, you know, you can kind of spout off about kind of Leninism and war communism and Marxism all you want. If there's no organized labor movement to relate those ideas to, inevitably those ideas will be molded to fit around existing interests and existing power structures. And there are no labor power structures. Well, this there is, is, this, is no I think, is expression a, yeah, of the yeah. organized of organized labor interests. So my question to you, Alex, honest as you are, is then what does that look like when these kind of Marxist ideas are remolded around existing kind of power structures, yeah, and existing I, organized interests? No, and, and that, my guess and that, is they end up looking very different from Leninism. Yeah, and I and indeed that would be probably my second big criticism of Malm, um, secondary to the cornucopian. Uh, question, which is the democratic one, I guess, for, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, Malm makes the point, I'm trying to look through my notes here to find it, um, that yes, the, you know, the Leninist argument would mean taking over the state, uh, but actually, uh, and I'm quoting here, all we have to work with is the dreary bourgeois state tethered to the circuits of capital as always. Um, and here I think lies uh, Malm's problem in it, lack of sensitivity to the risks, to put it lightly, that this would entail. It might diminish our domination over nature. Incidentally, I think domination of nature or mastery over nature is a good thing. Um, and that would involve, you know, a lot of preservation, conservation and fighting against climate change, because that would be ma true mastery. But, um, you know, anyway, let's just put it as, um, you know, dealing with climate change. It might allow it to deal with climate change, but at the cost of increasing domination over man. Uh, and I think that's the real um, problem, which he's a little bit blithe about and this is where the emergency the nature of the imminent emergency and the catastrophism leads him to justify those risks because he thinks it's worth it because the, otherwise nothing has any meaning because you know the world explodes effectively so i think that's a big problem um and i think uh Tudes is right in saying that you know war communism was administered by a revolutionary party in a life and death struggle for survival but this is not our situation, at least not yet, says Tews. And I think that's right. And we cannot, in this situation, conjure up or concoct the emergency, as Malm tries to do rhetorically, um, you know, through persuasion is what I'm saying. Um, and, and indeed, ultimately false, not to persuasion, but through that, to direct action. You know, that ends up being the practice that Malm um, proposes. So, the, the, and the problem is here, is that with climate change, it might well never come. We might be aware that there is an, a, an urgency of dealing with climate change, of reducing emissions of various forms of mitigation and indeed adaptation. But the fact is the nature of climate change, of it being gradual and being dispersed in the sense of, you know, there's a, a hurricane here, which is more frequent than usual. There's more drought here. The Sahel dries up and pushes um, people upwards to migrate to elsewhere, whatever. All these things which are happening and will intensify don't happen as a, um, you know, an overnight thing where suddenly it's an obvious emergency, as in the case of the white army invading Russia. So because you never have that emergency moment, it means that democratic persuasion and democratic power is necessary. And that's where I disagree. That's where I find, you know, Malm very problematic in that his argument 
leads to adventurism, leads to terrorism, um, because he abandons democratic persuasion, because he thinks it's an emergency. And you, if you can't convince people of the emergency, then you just have to act. And I think, well, no, you kind of do have to rely on persuasion because the emergency doesn't impose itself okay, objectively. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, uh, George, did you want to respond to any of that? Well, just I think the, the fundamental starting point <clears throat> that climate change is a revolutionary problem. I just don't agree with that. I just don't think that is correct because a revolutionary problem, well, I actually like wrote down what exactly does that mean? Like I'm not in those words, um, but like probably just wrote a question mark, uh, underlined it and wrote a question mark. But like, what is a revolutionary problem? It's one that can only be opposed to a revolutionary subject. So if you don't have a revolutionary subject, you don't have any revolutionary problems. I mean, that might be, me being either crude or intellectually dishonest, but I'm happy to to do to <laughs> accept either of either or both. No, I, two, I mean um, I don't neither. I just think you're wrong. I mean I, I think you're wrong because I think we you know we can no, say I won't accept that we though. can say that we can say that there's socialism or you can say socialism or barbarism, right? Um, so, but there is, but, okay, yeah, but, but that, there is and, another, and, that, and that imposes there is another answer to this, right? Is it a revolutionary problem? Is another way of saying can capitalism solve the climate crisis, right? I think I mean there is abundant evidence to show that it can solve the climate crisis and indeed it could have solved the climate crisis had things you know it wouldn't have required a lot for things to have gone differently in the 1970s right so and it seems to me it already is solving the climate you know in the course of trying to solve the climate crisis so in its I, own kind of um in its own kind of ramshackle haphazard and inordinately costly and increasingly authoritarian way but i don't doubt that capitalism can solve it so it doesn't seem to me that it's a revolutionary problem. And a revolutionary problem has to surely be a social problem, not one that is imposed on us by nature. But it is, so, okay, I think two things to that. One, the um, revolutionary problem is, or rather, to, fra to frame it as um, will or can capitalism solve climate change is two question begging. I think the question is, can climate change be solved within capitalism, right? Because otherwise it seems- That's to what I said. I mean, it amounts no, to the same thing. It isn't the same thing because one is, can capitalism solve it, which seems to suggest that can capital of, of its own devices solve it? And the other is, can it be solved within capitalism, which is to say, still with conscious action, demands, etc., actual um, social I think you're, struggle, political you're struggle. Over, you're overstating it, but go on anyway. No, no, but I think it will need some political struggle because otherwise, sure. you know, it, it, it will, even within intra-elite uh, you know, intra-elite kind of competition. No, but I'm not denying but, that. So, it's it's um, a question of whether or not it's a, something which, you know, kind of um, can only be solved by a revolutionary reconstitution of society. No, and I, there I agree. I think there'll be, there needs to be some, you know, probably some political revolution which leads to it. I, and, and again, a political revolution can be entirely a change within the elite, but that still is important. In fact, most revolutions are a change in, within the elite. Um, so I think that's true. The, the second point is... Um, uh, remind me of what the, what you finished saying, um, because I had a, a specific response to this. Ah, yes, it's something that is imposed by nature, and that it's a you yeah. know, revolution supposed a social problem. I think Malm is clear, and this comes through in his discussion of critical vulnerability theory. Now, critical vulnerability, excuse me, critical vulnerability theory in the 1970s emphasized the social determinants of vulnerability, saying that you know basically natural disasters yeah. don't just happen. It's so, you know, like it's the fact that people are poor and, yeah, or don't fair. have the right infrastructure, whatever. And Malm, I think, 
radically extends that in a way I think, which I, I find convincing that the social is behind the natural, right? That there's that there is a social determinant and it, and it is specifically fossil capital and the emission of, uh, of, of carbon emissions, which is determined by this form of social order, which creates climate change. So it's not purely natural. It's, it's, it's socialized no, nature that, or humanized so nature. Let me, okay, so I take that and let me restate. I suppose the, in the classical paradigm, the revel, you know, you need a revolution to resolve the contradiction of um, the con internal contradictions of bourgeois society between the forces and relations of production. It doesn't seem to me that, and this goes back to, it's another way of saying the same thing, that you don't need to reconstitute the relations of production in capitalism in order to solve the problems that are posed by climate change um so, you know so you can I get rid a... of fossil capital and yeah. you will a lot of people are going to make a lot of money on wind power they already are right and on solar you know on solar and so on so that doesn't seem that seems to me eminently um, likely and feasible georgia yeah. i have a sub <clears throat> way to like invert. So you, you asked the question, like, can capitalism solve climate change? And that's the, precisely the wrong question. In fact, the question that I think Malman too poses: can climate change solve capitalism? They're trying to like, they're trying to reverse it um, and ask the question in a different way. I don't yeah. really have a have a like a follow on from that, other than like it was it's good. Just it was so... actually quite good. So that's yeah, okay. okay, okay. I'm glad I glad I, that's a swing and a hit. So I'll I'll accept that and just shut up now well that's the intellectually to... on intellectual honesty we want here on this podcast <laughs> i wanted to um i wanted to challenge a bit this contrast also the social democratic and you know kind of time frame with the revolutionary one i'm not sure it i'm not sure i'm convinced um i think the social democratic time frame particularly in the middle of the 20th century it had that same urgency you know, I mean, it accepted in the 1940s, it felt the immediate pressure, not least the immediate pressure of a world war against the Nazis. So the methods were different there, right? The way in which they proposed to resolve the problems was different. So the idea that the, um, you know, that uh, social Democrats are kind of, uh, that the classical tradition of social democracy is just ambling along kind of comfortably and with everything in the distance and so on. I think that's um, something of a caricature, particularly when you're talking, say, about Keynes giving radio addresses in the 1940s. It's very clear, 1941, 42, it's very clear that there is an immediate emergency. So I'm not sure that the, that the, um, that the eco-Leninist paradigm and the social democratic one have, at least in their kind of classical formulations in the 20th century, the Leninist and social democratic paradigms have kind of, um, you know, that the emergency is kind of deferred uh, in one and not the other. So I'm not quite sure that setup kind of works, really. I think um, it, I'm, I'm not sure. I think you're giving it a bit short shrift. The, you know, the idea of the forward, the bracket, slow forward march of labor, like the you know that that uh, the start of the film 1900 zooming in on that famous picture the mm. fourth set there, there people i mean maybe i'm just reading too much into my own like mental pictures of this but like the social democratic like the walking forward whereas leninism is the kind of <clears throat> the armored train going going much faster yeah, uh, yeah do, I think that's you know, right. But there's no, but okay, but look, I mean, it was, you know, you're talking, I mean, I think that kind of this, that slow incremental gradualism was, um, you know, that was a specific strain. Um, so, you know, the, that's uh, the Bernstein revisionist kind of idea. Fabians the, as well. Yeah, indeed. But, but by the middle of the 20th century, if you're talking about Keynes writing in the Great Depression, 
right? Um, or kind of um, uh, negotiating about the, you know, what the future kind of uh, economic institutions of the United Nations should look like. That seems to me it's in a very immediate context of a crisis rather than um, the Bernstein vision of like, um, you know, these reform, gradualist kind of reform and transformation. So I think it's important just to be clear about, you know, what we're talking about and not to kind of force the contrast. So you still, though, I have to say, Alex, despite your honesty, which is deeply appreciated, you did, you failed to actually address the question that I said, right, which was about the, um, what, you know, how does it relate to, how does this politics relate to existing power structures right so for malm the absence of a revolutionary actor kind of as you say kind of he he is forced into um you know blowing up pipelines radical activism more and more extreme measures that have to be undertaken to meet this um kind of terrifying civilizational challenge including you know extreme the extreme vision of um using war communism as a model but who is going to do it right because it's not an organized labor movement so yeah. who's it going to be it's going to be the existing states that are going to do it and well so, no not the states I there think... i mean it's it's activists Right, who are doing well, this? Well, no, but they want. It's not state. activists are not going to run the state. They want the state to do. They want they yeah. do activism in order to get the state to do certain kinds of things, right? So it's going to be our existing states doing this. And so the follow-on conclusion from that is that he's effectively providing legitimacy for the ex for existing states to act in certain ways. Yeah, and for and the I, radical and I, and I, kind of movement, he's providing them with a kind of glamour, the glamorous kind of pixie dust of revolutionary Marxism. And making them feel more radical than perhaps they are, right? I, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't. I just don't think that it's the gotcha you think it is, because Malm is explicit about it. Um, and I, and this is what I said already. Well, no, I don't think he it, is because he it, accepts. He, he is, that sorry. Let me let me just let me just let me just okay. quote the same thing again, right? Because I all we have to work with is a dreary bourgeois state tethered to the circuits of capital, as always. Um, he says this, right? So he he knows that, and he says that the. That this sort of activism, and I think this is actually Tuz's reading of it, but you know he quotes him uh, quotes Malm directly in saying that the you know the form of the direct action that Malm proposes will you know lead to polarization, will lead to um, you know conflict, and that and that will in some ways maybe all the kids with placards will persuade some policymakers to change, or will force other people into it, or you know if you blow a pipeline two times. By the third time, maybe no one's going to insure it, and that will lead to a shift away from fossil fuels and so on. So I think that's you know I I, I think Yan I think Malm answers that question. I think the problem is I think the it's I think not the, war communism, right? I mean it's just I, capitalism, I, a different I, kind I, of capitalism. I, I agree, and that that's that's where there's this elision, and I have a lot of problem with this war metaphor actually, which we'll come on to discuss when we talk about war. Um, but I think yeah, that is precisely the problem. The the just on a kind of practical level, okay. So you've got these activists blowing up pipelines. He assumes that there will be a polarized which means that there will be some massive people in favor of this sort of direct action. It'll drag people along, perhaps taking, you know, maybe kind of civil rights activism as an example or so on. Yes, maybe. But I just think, uh, I think it will be so repulsive to so many people because what you're basically providing, what you're basically promising people, right? You're not, it's like to take, to take from Lenin, right? You're not saying um, bread, peace and land. You're not because you're not giving them peace, right? You're you're promising a lot of disruption. If people are willing to buy that, you know, fine. They might be willing to 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 deal with some disruption, but you have to at least promise them bread and land, speaking metaphorically. And Mom doesn't provide that either. So I think it will well, be repulsive to a, a, a very large body of people. 
Well, he, he I guess he offers less less bread, <clears throat> no peace, and greener <laughs> land. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. a, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's I mean, so I think I mean, well, he, technically, he it's doesn't... more bread because there's definitely not going to be more meat. So, <laughs> or rather, there's going to be no more <laughs> meat. So it's, it's... You because it's it's carbs, Alex, and so meat, you should be meat eating is the vegetables. New bread. Yeah. So. And it's also it requires being manufactured and so <laughs> do you on. Say, so. Do you say bread is the meat of vegetables? <laughs> I don't know. George, but, like, I, said, yeah. I said meat is the new bread, which is a right. Tracy Jordan line from 30 Rock. No, I think, um, yeah, I think that one thing to, you know, that I think is really useful about the Malm book and the Two's Review is kind of the, like within the environmental movement, there is a clear, there's a clear, like, do you want the, the, the big green state and the kind of the, I guess the kind of the easy, uh, new green deal option or do you want something which is which is actually within the you know within the movement very much more radical and is i think more likely to to probably have some some sort of <clears throat> i guess mass buy-in and and an effect that way and that's what mal out, outlines and i think it is it is quite valuable for that reason and, and an important an important read because it isn't the kind of oh we can just you know we can just kind of circumvent national democracy and like lock in some like post Corbyn post Bernie like Green New Deal it'll all be fine I mean he's really I think he's at least within the terms that the environmental movement sets itself taking it much more seriously and responding in the terms that 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 every environmentalist in some way should be responding like if you think it's really this serious this is the sort of thing you should do I mean I don't agree with the premise but I think he should and, and when we talked to him he was very I think the consistency of his position and the kind of the the probity the intellectual probity that he shows is you know that is quite admirable because he, he follows things through to their conclusion even if it even if the, basically the conclusion is you need to blow up as many pipelines you know two three however many times and that's there's a few people who who really follow the, the logic through but i think he is one of them So, I mean, given all this, I mean, I think it seems to me like there is no, you know, like Tews wants to cast it as a kind of, wants to cast the eco-Leninism as a kind of hard, hard-nosed, kind of steely-eyed uh, political realism. But it doesn't seem to me to be that at all. It's deeply politically naive, right? Because there isn't, I mean, Leninism wasn't about taking over the state, but about smashing the state up famously and substituting for it new organs of state power, which emerged organically emerged organically from the working class revolt. So given we're not going to get that, right, my guess is that the, you know, what would actually happen is depending on the extent of this kind of eco-Leninist, the influence on radical activism to varying degrees will end up with varying big green states, um, you know, which will be legitimated and rolled out in various contexts, depending on, you know, various kind of circumstances and to a greater or lesser extent legitimated by an eco-Leninist paradigm. And so given his inability to really think through his premise, you know, from his starting premise about the absence of an organized working class movement, an organized revolutionary movement, he will inevitably end up, you know, kind of recreating what he supposedly sets out to, um, to address. I mean, that seems to me just, and he does, but he doesn't accept that. So he can talk about bourge, dreary bourgeois states, but the fact is he'll end up providing a rationale for recreating a green, a green capitalism. It might not be a green new deal, but it'll be a green capitalism. And that seems to me just to flow from the logic of the, of the argument. Um, 
But I wanted to move on to, I suppose, reading it through the prism of another emergency, um, which is the Ukraine war. Because I think this is, and this is genuinely fascinating, because rereading the Tuz's essay just from November last year, it already feels like, um, you know, years have elapsed, even though it's only a matter of months since he wrote it. Uh, and also to think about, yeah, so to think through the consequences. So the, I mean, to, uh, Malm's book is infused with martial imagery. He even talks about, in one point, he even talks about the, um, the immune system kind of having infantry. So he's very attached, and along the model of war communism, he's very attached to martial metaphors, to martial ideas of organization, and all of that. And so, you know, and kind of we got it now, right? So we're in, we're in a kind of proxy war in Ukraine, uh, the member states of NATO are anyway. Um, and how do things look from the vantage point of a geopolitical standoff with an energy power like Russia? How does how does eco-Leninism look now? Yeah, I think it's a that's a really good question, a very difficult one. Um, so I'm going to do it uh, in a bit of a tangential way because um, one of the things I did want to say about war and peace, not not the novel, um, is that in the in Malm's book, in in the one that we're discussing specifically, uh, Corona Climate um, War Communism, that Malm's really sarcastic about pacifism. I mean, really, his target here is is um, environmentalists who refuse direct action in favor of gradualism and so on. Um, he, you know, he says, you know, imagine that instead of a war on want or class war, we'd have instead, we'd have instead peace on want or class peace. Aha, got you. Right. Um, yeah, sort of, except I think that speaks to a limited imagination on Malm's part that there's nothing between this peace and war dichotomy. Um, that either you have the metaphor of war and war, not just as class war, but war really is as military conflict and militarization and, and the whole situation of war communism in the early 20s, um, or you have peace, including class peace. And I think, well, no, I mean, you can have, you know, class struggle, democratic struggle, which is not neither could be described as peace nor specifically fits into the framework of war. So I think there's a real limit of to, to his imagination there. Um, which doesn't really get me around to, to answering your question about energy, I guess, specifically, Phil. Um, but, it, but it is telling that Malm is um, like, you know, that Lenin faced fuel scarcity, but that isn't our problem today. And it's actually like, well, we might not have fuel scarcity as such, but well, we don't produce, Brazil, but maybe, we don't, but we don't here. produce, huh? Not in Brazil, maybe, but here. But no, in, there's know. no, but there's no, there's no like objective, like objective scarcity, right? Oh, you mean, I mean in the world, right? Yeah, there's You're no fuel. There's not a, there's not a scarcity of, of fuel. There's not a scarcity of fuel. There's what you don't do is produce enough energy cheaply, um, and and so I think he's and again he's kind of blasé about that because for him the production of greater energy is for him not necessarily an index of greater civilization, which it is uh, for me, and it and it should be for for every humanist and Marxist indeed. So just just actually uh, one thing that you said, Alex, which I think is really important about the, the about Malm's book is who the audience is, and I think it's a very effective book for the audience. Mm. And this kind of just just struck me like hearing you say this, but it really is environmentalists who don't or didn't want direct action. Like it's basically, I mean, maybe there is a kind of a Lenin, an eco Leninist, like <clears throat> I don't know, to like impulse to take people who were. Uh, already convinced of the the importance of the cause, but not prepared to to act kind of politically in a, in a more radical way, and to radicalize them, or to, to to show that their position 
doesn't work on their on its own terms and to kind of like produce recruits train these cadres of um of uh revolutionary in inverted commas um a pipeline blower uppers um but to address i guess what you were sort of posing phil like in the context of of i mean some people have have kind of in a weird way supported or, or thought that there's a there is something a silver lining i guess is the way to put it around the kind of russia ukraine conflict because it does potentially make energy more expensive in europe and energy should be overpriced or should be more expensive because we should use less of it so there is a kind of you can see a logic there of like well if you want people to use less energy then you should be not necessarily politically in favor of things which cause this but you should at least point out that there are that there are dependencies energy dependencies which are unsustainable and actually there are you know there are less energy intensive ways that we could live our lives which could be positive or, you know, more so there, yeah. So there are two two points flow from this. Um, you know, the first is obviously that the question of the popular willingness to bear the costs, right, of a green transition, a green new deal, let alone you know eco Leninist war communism, whatever, right, uh, is being tested right now. Um, in because they're preparing for a winter, and the way they're preparing for it in Germany, at least, is they're firing up all all their old dirty coal plants. Um, the British government is uh, procrastinating, but looks like it will probably keep or open up, I think, a coal plant in Cumbria and is looking to find ways to sustain kind of to um, build up fossil fuel capacity, given the fact that the Western powers are trying to carve Russia out of the global economy and certainly to carve them out of providing energy to to Europe. And the reason they're firing up their old you know, coal power stations is because they don't think they don't they know they can't take people with them right they know that they can't get the citizens of western europe to accept a cold shuddering you know shivering in the cold this winter for the sake of defending ukraine from vladimir putin let alone um the idea of a kind of a global energy transition so that seems to me to be one kind of clear consequence of the war in ukraine right is these dreary bourgeois states simply don't have the capacity to undertake this kind of um, transformation. They, though I suppose, I mean, the emergency is, is precisely the way in which they seek the kind of legitimacy that they so sorely lack, right? And this is something which is simply beyond Malm, I think. He doesn't think about the fact that um, crisis kind of emergency politics is embedded in the functioning of these dreary bourgeois states. They're not, it's not something which kind of Im is imposed on them from outside. Yeah, so I guess on, on the point about like dreary bourgeois states um, being legitimated through emergencies, I think this is like, so my, my point would would kind of, not too highfalutin, but would be like, you had the nation state that legitimated itself through representing citizenry, then you had the member state, this is in the British case, uh, particularly, you see it quite strikingly, you know, that legitimated itself through inter-elite, uh, intra-elite relationships across Europe. And now you have this I think it's like the dreary bourgeois emergency state that's looking for a way to legitimate itself. It can't produce it through any sort of representative mechanism with the citizenry. It can't really, in the British case, at least no longer a member state, you can't, you can't rely on those things. So it's like the reaching for any sort of emergency. Is it COVID? Is it Ukraine? Is it something else which is going to come up? Cost of living crisis. I mean, the, the the Tories in this country are probably lining this 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 one up pretty pretty nicely for the for the winter, because 
there is no other way to legitimize um, and to kind of at, at least kind of have negative consent, i.e. not active um, objection to the state through, except for through saying we have this emergency, um, it's worse than all the other ones, you need to do what we what what we're saying things are terrible this this kind of playbook i think it's quite um it's quite like many things it's very advanced historically in the case of britain but it's um uh present across the whole of europe and potentially the the rest of the world well i mean i think the thing about the ukraine war is that it's not an emergency and it doesn't serve as emergency politics i think as we've discussed on this podcast before um you know if speaking as a like a citizen of a nato country like we are not at war right like that, yes, there's a proxy war, right? But it's not, um, it, it's still kind of hyper real to an extent. And for all that there's, you know, a waving of Ukraine flags and all the rest that goes along with it, um, you know, citizens in Sweden and Germany and the UK and the US aren't at war um, in, a, in a kind of direct sense in terms of involving a militarization of society. That isn't happening yet. Now, we don't know what might happen. We've discussed on a um, recent episode, yeah, which you won't have I mean, heard yet, happen. actually, listener, but uh, but about uh, kind of in response to our book about whether there might be kind of some growing militarization and, and so on. So we chatted about so we've chatted about this point then about um, you know how how much the Ukraine crisis and its costs for citizens in Western states, how much that tells us about their willingness to tolerate green transition, green New Deal. Um, let alone eco-Leninism. I suppose the second question, which is linked to it, is the um, irrationality, it seems to me, of, um, I suppose, of uh, the dreary bourgeois states um, in this situation. You know, I mean, at the moment, like, there's lots of um, frantic commentary in the press about the implosion of um, Germany's growth model, for instance. So as the powerhouse of the EU, it's always had large export surpluses, exporting all of its industrial equipment and so on um, uh, at the core of the Eurozone. And now, because of the increased um, import costs, it's lost all of that export surplus. Um, and there's, you know, trade union leaders and bosses who are telling the German government that you're at risk of deindustrializing Germany, um, given the fact that you've uh, put us in this situation where import costs are so high that Germany's growth model is falling apart. And I mean that, you know, this is just to illustrate the point about the irrationality of pursuing um, exacerbating and recklessly, you know, I mean, from the start of the conflict, kind of um, the NATO expansion, um, which is the background, NATO expansion into Eastern Europe, which is the background to the war in Ukraine, um, but also kind of constantly in, increasing the pressure in the conflict, um, flooding, uh, you know, flooding Ukraine with weapons. Um, uh, in As Richard Sacco told us in a previous episode, Boris Johnson telling Zelensky to avoid any kind of um, opening up talks with Moscow, Britain effectively sabotaging talks between Ukraine and Moscow and so on. Now, all of that seems to me to speak to irrationality that doesn't clearly link to any kind of sensible capitalist outlook, right? That if you had um, the state functioning as the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, it seems to me, you know, if that were the model, then it would seems to me like it should be functioning better than it is because the damage to economies, the damage to the political economy of leading Western states um, seems to me severe and extreme. And so, again, this kind of the irrationality of what's happening with the geopolitics doesn't seem to me to be anything that can be accounted for within Malm's framework. 
um, you can apply yeah. a very a very vulgar Marxist approach here, which is that the if the state is the committee for managing the common affairs of the, of the bourgeoisie or whatever for uniting and organizing capitalists essentially um <clears throat> you know it, it's broken down many of its capacities in the last 30 years so that maybe means that capitalists or capital is like more open to you know going their own way and showing how their individual rationality leads to sort of collective irrationality so i guess you know it's not particularly like detail focused point you might put it but like there is the conditions are there for increasing irrationality because capital is fundamentally irrational like this is the whole point that individually rational collectively not so much what's what's your point about the the state state doesn't function to well because the okay well maybe the, the the idea would be that the state in the last 30 years particularly of course western europe has seen its capacities to just be shredded like this is one of the things about neoliberalism is potentially that the the uh, you now move to the regulatory state. So instead of a instead of a state with any capacity to solve problems, it's just regulates and creates yeah. rules. It doesn't have that, that binding effect across across capital. So I mean, you know, as I said, it's it's a, more of a a big picture. Uh, but but neoliberalism wasn't but, to throw in there. So uh, my objection to that is that neoliberalism and that whole strict state transformation wasn't irrational. I mean, it was rational from the perspective of capital and the transformation that was imposed on the state worked. I mean, it was functional for capital as it became increasingly financialized and as it drove and the state drove uh, greater inequality, wage repression and so on. So, you know, it, it, it worked and it was rational. Now, it now is confronted with problems that it now can't resolve. And, and COVID was a good example of that, where instead of using state capacities and directing it to, you know, keeping people safe and and having enough hospital beds and effectively being able to um, resolve that question in a kind of rational way while keeping things as normal as possible. It was unable to do that. It had to uh, impose these kind of emergency powers and restrictions, um, which were relatively ineffective in actually, you know, solving the actual problem. So, you know, and, and the Ukraine case is similar in, in, in a little, maybe it's not similar because it's not a question of state capacity but rather but it's at least an irrationality of of the state at this moment in time but i don't think I don't, i'm i'm just taking issue i guess with with george with your um characterization of the state as somehow well, increasingly irrational over the past 30 years i'm not sure that's entirely right i would take issue with your taking issue of my characterization i mean isn't the whole point that like any rationality in one time horizon or one level within within like capital's view of the world is irrational at another level or another time horizon mm, so sure like it could it could, it could be it could be kind of rational to like yeah to have this state like changes in the state and to have all these changes in like in the workforce like in the in the short term but eventually you're going to under like by by destroying organized labor you're going to undermine uh your ability as capital to mobilize people i don't know i'm, I'm kind it of does it need to mobilize people i don't know but i mean i think my, my... well it needs to function right and it doesn't seem to be functioning effectively in a pursuing a kind of an irrational geopolitical strategy of confrontation with russia I mean, absolutely to, like i say they seem you know the people the businesses are going into the german government and saying you know what are you doing um so 
it's i mean i i don't know that this conversation is really answering that question and i'm not sure there is a clear answer i mean I, i'm sympathetic to where george is coming from but i think you can make a case for the the fact that neoliberalism is no you know whatever its origins might have been in terms of how it served business needs at the time that it's failing to serve the you know what we've uh, the ex- institutions and infrastructure that we have politically is failing to meet those needs at the moment um, and it's, you know, both in terms of legitimacy with the population, in terms of uh, policy, in terms of strategy, in terms of uh, responding to the various kinds of um, social and environmental challenges and what have you. But I, sp- I mean, so this takes us to our, I, um, the final point that we want to talk about, that I wanted to talk about before we uh, turn to some points from listeners Um which is that, um, so something that's kind of slightly curious to me, it's kind of an intellectual, um, it seems to me like it's an intellectual gap in Malm's argument and maybe an important one, which is that he was very taken with lockdown. Um, in the book, you know, he says like it was a kind of, he takes his, uh, what strikes him about it is the extent of this sweeping rollout and demonstration of state power all done at once um, in, ex- in conditions of um, in extremists. And that he sees this as indication of what's possible to do in extremists and therefore as providing a kind of a glimpse or um, a kind of, you know, a glimpse of what a more hopeful um, scenario for climate action might look like. I suppose what what I'm left wondering is where does lockdown come from in his model? Right. So I've got, a, you know, I think I've got an account of lockdown. I think I can explain where it comes from, but I was a lockdown skeptic. And so I can see it arising from within the kind of um, context in which we live. Whereas given how bleak his outlook is, it seems to me strange that he sees states acting in such a positive manner um, as or positive, at least by his reckoning, as lockdown was. I mean, I I sort of disagree with the premise of it, or rather I I disagree with your reading of of Malma had a different reading of, of what he argues. I mean, also as a lockdown skeptic, but nevertheless, I, I I actually think that Malm was critical of lockdown, perhaps impressed at the ability of state autonomy to go against business interest. I think that he is impressed by, and I think I'm yeah, fuck it, I'm I'm impressed by that too. I think that's a good thing, perhaps. Um, you know, it certainly is if we're talking about state irrationality, that if the state can act in a way, you know, in some sort of greater interest and not servicing the direct needs of a certain fraction of capital, then yeah, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, that's more rational. But um, but I think that as to the reading of Malm, I think he says, you know, states actually didn't demonstrate a great deal of state capacity in 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 what they did because they weren't they knew what the the what was coming over the hill they knew that zoonotic transfer was coming and they didn't do anything about it in terms of and of course his answer to that is more preservation and so on um less intrusion into tropical uh, area not in raw nature uh, wild nature rather um but so it that and then on the other hand when it actually came to imposing lockdowns he sees them as problematic i mean he's critical um about um measures like uh, tracking and tracing and the kind of all the forms of social control that involves. So I, I, I guess I just don't, I don't really have an answer to the you question. You don't see the problem. Um, I don't think that Malm, yeah, I, I don't think that Malm, that Malm thinks, oh, lockdown. I mean, maybe he does, I don't know. But in the, at least in the book, I don't think he says, you know, he doesn't say, oh, lockdown was great. I think he's impressed by the power that the state and the autonomy that the state demonstrated 
with regard to business, but I don't think it, I don't think he was in favor yeah, of that. I think so. I mean, I think that's the question, right? So the autonomy of the state seems to me to be an indication of irrationality and dysfunction rather than an indication of um, a kind of a, 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 a glimpse of a hopeful future of so, um, yeah, so what? So you want, you want a kind of good old fashioned straight bat bourgeois state that just like serves the the bourgeois interests and you, you know where you are with it. It's very, very solid and dependable. But, and I mean, like the, actually, I think Tuzi's review is is very astute in this kind of um, noting that many on the left, at, at least at first thought that the lockdowns were slightly encouraging. And he, and he, he does say that Malm, he does point, that, point out that Malm argued that lockdowns um, stripped the state down to its barest relative autonomy. So there is something like in this reading somewhat positive or it not positive about lockdowns but it reveals something that is a positive underlying factor that the state is able to be more detached like to be more more relatively autonomous um than it had been previously which you know and you then see, he, he, he continues so by, you yeah you okay, mock, you well you mock george but um it's not so much nostalgia for the old bourgeois state that i'm expressing but the idea that the state is connected to social in to social interest and constituent, you know, kind of expresses the interests of constituents. Now you can make, you know, the Marxist critique of that was the state should represent another group. Um, but the idea it wasn't, you know, the critique wasn't to kind of sever the notion of um, of representation. The fact that the state acted as the executive committee of the bourgeoisie was an accomplishment. You know, it wasn't just a critical comment on um, on the nature of the state, but also the fact that they did have an agency that was capable of acting on their collective behalf was um, something to be, you know, was something that had to be replicated through the proletarian seizure of power. So the fact that it's stripped down to its this idea that, you know, it's relative autonomy in the context of lockdown, that doesn't seem to me to, it doesn't, I don't draw the same conclusion from it that, uh, that Malm does. Um, and it does seem to me kind of uh, spooky, both in the sense of um, genuinely creepy in this kind of immediate authoritarian sense, but also spooky from the viewpoint of a classical kind of Marxian social theory where you have the state acting seemingly, um, you know, kind of beyond the far beyond the interests of business, because if business, you know, if the interests of business had really been reckoned with rather than, you know, just Amazon and Deliveroo and so on, then it seems to me. Uh, we wouldn't probably wouldn't have had lockdown at all. So I think twos, um, or I guess more your the, the position. It, it's kind of a, a challenge for the position that you're articulating. Or actually, no, may, maybe the better way to put it is that the, the moral element is more introduced, not in the Marxist tradition, but I think many on the the left, as as twos puts it, kind of regarded lockdowns as quote, bringing out the best in modern bourgeois democracy, the need, the respect for life, trumping the respect for property, a victory for the egalitarian premise to which democracy is sworn. So there's like, there, I think there is, I think Tuz does get this absolutely right, that there was that introduction of like the moral lens, which obviously isn't present in Marxism, of like, oh, finally, finally these bourgeois states, they're doing what they, what they're, what they're living their best selves and their uh, their best lives, and they're actually doing what yeah, they. Yeah, but it was their life. It wasn't the pursuit. It wasn't freedom, you know, liberty and the freedom uh, and freedom to pursue happiness, and that kind of. No, thing was... no, I agree. But people, people, this is how I think how it was, at least initially understood that there was yeah. some sort of like kernel of like 
moral humane humane good, concern yeah humane that's a good way to put well, it because like an epiphany of care finally that the state realized what it should have been realizing all along that people are people yeah and they actually should shouldn't die and people were quite happy with that so i think that's probably right yeah i mean i think that the point about the autonomy and, and i think it, it was the state having demonstrating a, a degree of autonomy from um from you know capitalist interests um, but it was for irrational ends, right? So, you know, I think we can say that, yes, it, as, as, as Phil rightly says, the, the state's ability to represent interests in a, in, a, in a general sense, the sort of general will of the bourgeoisie is an achievement, right? Um, but the problem is, is to the extent that lockdown showed the bourgeois the, rather the bourgeois state acting autonomously the problem was that it was for a rational end so it's not exactly the example you'd want to take um maybe malm sees in it though and being kind of properly dialectical about it that it shows a possibility um in there that there's a kernel there of it being able to act but you could make it you could turn that towards more rational ends and i think that's the kind of line of argument that he pursues that through pressure through direct action whatever you can force the state into that autonomous action and uh you know of of prohibiting fossil fuels i think that's probably true and i mean i so this is the irony of the whole thing i think his kind of eco-leninism is like the the caricature of um what all the critics and opponents of lenin and Leninism said, which is that, you know, you have kind of a vanguard elite and uh, a state that will substitute for the organized action of the labor movement and the working class and that it will become an authoritarian actor in its own right. And I think that is exactly where Malm ends up. And I think he's um, he's happy, in fact, for that to happen. Anyway, um, I think we need to move on to uh, some listener questions. And um, there's one in particular that I wanted to talk about um uh, from it's because it's so detailed and rich and i think there's enough in there for us to um to talk about fruitfully uh so it's from ran heilbrunn i'm not going to read the whole thing out but i will just summarize it which is um that malm has this idea of a global subject so in relation to a global crisis such as climate change it requires a global subject and heilbrunn our listener ran heilbrunn suggests that this falls to um, a Lashian critique of globalism, which he developed um, uh, some years back in um, in his book, the 1985 book, The Minimal Self. And so in this idea, there is, uh, you know, globalists that the kind of Lash's critique of this globalist idea is that when problems are formulated in such kind of remote and abstract ways, they are effectively paralyzing because they don't connect with people in the way they need to in order to induce political action. And so for it to be a genuine, um, for a problem to be genuinely meaningful, it needs to be formulated in ways that connect to people in much more kind of immediate, direct, concrete ways rather than in these kind of grand and remote ways. Um, and so the our listener here is asking whether or not Malm's point falls to the Lashian critique. Um, Namely, this is uh, the listener now, namely, how do we explain the mismatch between, on the one hand, the gravity of the climate crisis and the justness of the climate cause, and on the other, the apathy of the general public and the inability of climate activism to seriously take off? And he's wondering if Lash provides an answer to that. So what do you think? 
I think that's uh, once again an excellent question um, from the listener there, uh, who I had a, uh, the opportunity to meet. He came to our event in Berlin last month, um, stayed around for drinks afterwards, and it was like, great to chat to him. Um, so it's great to hear from Ron again. Uh, and again, like I think a very insightful question. Um, I don't have very much to say to that, I guess, other than I entirely agree, and I think that's very insightful. I think that intangibility of these global problems um, is some a, a genuine problem to be reckoned with. Um, Unless we just want to, you know, throw our hands up and say, "Well, we can't, we can't deal with it," um, or just retreat into various national politics, which, um, again, that's not saying that national politics aren't important or the building block, but it can't be an just an, a retreat. Um, but he, I think the the comment is entirely right in that um, the environmental movement and that their critique their and planetary outlook actually just uh, as he says adds another layer of complexity to this political ecological paradox i think um <clears throat> kind of to, to answer this in a bit of a diagonal way i think the it's definitely a problem that the, the climate movement kind of poses itself like why why aren't more people interested in in taking action on this and i think there is you know to to draw this out like what are the consequences of this likely to be? I think there is something about how, like in the in the COVID context, to kind of draw this parallel out a little bit. Um, Laura Dodsworth's book on on fear is pretty like pretty good about like detailing all of the nudge tactics and the kind of behavior change and the the use of kind of um, social psychology to get people to to act and to change their behavior. So I think it's. Well, it's obviously already happened, but I don't see there's any any way in which it won't deepen and continue. That the, the you know the climate movement will, in addition to resorting to kind of more polit- directly political modes of mobilisation, there's also going to be a whole set of nudges, presumably designed to to move people towards a more a position more accepting of on the one hand political action, on the sec- on the other hand kind of de- de- uh, sacrifices and decreased standard of living around. Um, kind of climate change policy so i think it's you know there is there is something about the self-understanding of or of the problems that the climate change movement sees itself as facing which is one about like how do we get the you know the 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 masses the cattle the idiots to, to kind of join our cause like we can do it through a whole set of quite sophisticated increasingly sophisticated behavioral techniques i don't think that really answers the um question but it was a thought that was provoked by it i have a i mean so i have a, a thought and um perhaps which i hope is a response to to Rand's question and then we i guess we can leave it there um for this session but i suppose what strikes me is um uh the lashian kind of response is very much in lashes kind of petty bourgeois um outlook self you know self-professed petty, petty bourgeois outlook in the sense of um that it's uh, beyond the capacity of people to kind of uh, measure up to these grand problems and that really the only action that you have available is, you know, kind of community, um, even the national kind of horizons of the way in which Lash has formulated his understanding of what political action looks like in opposition to all the grand kind of global justice. Uh, justice. And I think the it's not, I don't think there has to be a disconnect between the two things, between ordinary kind of political action by individuals and global, um, you know, and kind of global problems. I think what's lacking is the intermediary, the intermediary institutions that would make political action at the local or individual level connect to um, action at the global level. 
and that is i think what's lacking and most obviously is any kind of connection to politics at the level um let alone politics at the um you know let alone kind of politics which was mediated through uh, organized labor and the working class because that was obviously the traditional kind of vision of internationalism was that the proletariat would overcome the nation state through the process of seizing power so that it was understood as a global as a global process but one which was very intimately tied um through the very kind of practice of workplace organizing and it's those in kind of intermediary institutions and political practices that have been totally gutted and that um you know is the consequence of where we are now so I think that would be my that would be my attempt to answer Rand's question. All right, that's it for this episode. And actually, that is the end of the first section, the first six months of the 2022 Reading Club syllabus. Uh, this has been the section on emergency politics and control. As I said at the top of this, we want this to be an ongoing conversation. So now that the six episodes have come out, um, hopefully lots of local reading clubs have been able to discuss all these works or will be able to do so in the next weeks. Um, so you do have, if you do have questions and points made, uh, issues that have been raised over the course of uh, these past six months, uh, do send them in, do let us know. Um, we'd be eager to engage with them in a kind of ongoing sense, um, address them both in the next reading clubs as well as uh, maybe in other venues as well. If anything um, raises itself, maybe we can do a dedicated episode on this in the, in the future. Um, so just to say what's coming up, uh, the next three months uh, will be ones that I'll be leading on. It's on uh, cynical ideology. And the idea here is that declining trust in institutions has created a combustible situation. Uh, we believe less and less in official narratives, but nevertheless seem to carry on participating in society as it is. Uh, is this because we lack trust in each other as well as in uh, you know, the state institutions and so on? And finally, how can we dis distinguish skepticism from paranoia? Is there a argument for a lot of things that are called conspiracy theories? Um, should we be a little bit more cynical about the motives and the ways of acting that elites have? Or is this all uh, falling prey to the worst form of conspiracy theories that a more structural understanding would uh, would quash? So anyway, we're going to take the next three readings, uh, obviously one by one. But, uh, you know, the idea is that uh, everybody, all listeners, uh, listen, read all of them and follow along. Um, and again, as I said at the beginning, you don't necessarily need to feel pressure to read each one in advance of each session. If you do and want to send in questions each time, that's fantastic. Uh, we highly encourage that. But if not, uh, again, it's an ongoing exploration of uh, you know three of the most critical issues of our time as we see them. So uh, again, it's a, it's a long and open-ended process. Just to say what's coming up in the first one, which will be at the end of July, it is uh, Slavoj Žižek's How Marx Invented the Symptom, which is uh, the first chapter from his first major book, The Sublime Object of Ideology, and in my opinion, uh, is absolutely brilliant. And, and so um, I look forward to rereading that and to be able to discuss that. If you're not yet able to get that, it's also available as a slightly edited down version in uh, the collected edition Mapping Ideology, but, and we'll provide a PDF to that to uh, Patreon subscribers. Um, 
we'll, we'll be going through the uh, summer, at least the, the summer in, in the north, uh, which uh, will take in Trust, which is a, a chapter from Anthony Giddens, The Consequences of Modernity. And then we'll finish off in September with uh, Conspiracy Theory, looking at Timothy Melly's Empire of Conspiracy. Each of these is just a chapter or a couple of chapters. It's no more than 100 pages and often only around 50 pages. So it's something that is uh, really digestible. And if, of course, if you do want to read more, we have provided plenty of additional readings to uh, delve deeper into these issues of cynicism, of trust, of conspiracy theories and paranoia. So uh, we look forward to you joining us. If Again, if you want to set up a local reading club or find other people who have already set up one in the city where you live, do get in touch at info at bungacast.com. And that's it. Catch you next month. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.